Is it good to be here this morning? Amen. Our scripture this morning comes from Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. It's Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. Hear now the word of God. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the, cher- the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Will you please pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you now that we can come and, and hear from you and study your word. We thank you that you and your great grace have seen fit to reveal yourself to us through it. And so we want to come and hear from you. We want to see you. We live in a world, Father, that has many different views of of what God is like. And the vast majority of them are, are just dead wrong. The vast majority of them are just recreations of ourselves. But your word shows us who you truly are. And so we come to it this morning and we set ourselves under it. We, we want to submit to your revelation. We want it to inform our minds and our hearts' desires. We want to know you, that we may love you, that we may follow you. So please help us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sir Edmund Burke Jones was an English artist in the late 19th century. One day, Sir Edmund was invited to his daughter's house for afternoon tea, and on this occasion, his little granddaughter, who was also seated at the table, was not well behaved. So her mother made her stand in the corner with her face to the wall. Sir Edward did not interfere. But he did show up the next morning unannounced with paints in his hand. He went to the wall where the little girl had been forced to stand, and there he painted pictures, a kitten chasing its tail, 
lambs in the field, goldfish swimming. When he was finished, the wall on both sides of the corner were decorated with his paintings, all for his granddaughter's delight. Now if she had to stand in the corner again, at least she would have something to look at. I think it's a neat picture of judgment tempered with grace. It's sometimes difficult to know, I think, how to balance grace and accountability, grace and judgment. I once saw a sign on a nun's convent saying, absolutely no trespassing. Violators will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, signed Sisters of Mercy. There's somewhat of a a difficult to maintain this balance between mercy and and grace. I think the church struggles with this. After all, we are the, the people who have God's truth and we are to stand for God's truth. And yet at the same time, are we not to offer grace to those who would destroy God's truth and to pervert it? In fact, I even think we we take this struggle and apply it to God, and there are a number of mischaracters of God, and and some want to say that that God is God of all grace, and when we sin, he just kind of winks at it and says, listen, don't worry about it, it's not that big of a deal. And people who like this kind of God, like the verse, uh, judge not lest ye be judged. And yet there are others who think God is a God of all righteousness and, and holiness and A God who is stern with a rod in his hand, sitting upon a throne in heaven, looking down upon us. They may prefer the verse that our God is a consuming fire. But the Bible presents, I think, a a more robust picture of God. A more nuanced picture of who God is. It, It shows us a God who perfectly balances justice and grace, accountability and mercy. A God who is both gracious and holy, loving and righteous, merciful and just. We see this God here in Genesis chapter 3. When God comes to respond to sin. You notice Adam and Eve have joined the devil's rebellion against God and he does not strike them dead. Nor does he say, that's okay, it's no big deal, don't, don't bother yourself with it. No, no, we see a God who who will give hardship in the face of sin, but at the same time will give hope and grace. A God who will will present both consequences to sin and at the same time a covering for it. And so my my hope this morning is that you and I would just become better acquainted with God. In in light of all the, the mischaricatures of God in our culture and in this world, that we would look upon His Word and see God for who He truly is. We see this in God's response to sin. This divine response to humanity's rebellion. I think this is important for us because as we have said, Genesis is not simply a a book about what happened. I think it is a book about what happens in our life. And so we'll look at how God responds to sin in three steps as we work our way through this passage. Number one, we'll see that God gives hope to defeat sin. Number two, that God brings hardship because of sin. And number three, God offers grace to cover sin. First of all, consider with me that God gives hope to defeat sin. Now, just to catch us up and, and to remember where we are, we, we've seen that God has created a perfect world and he created Adam and Eve upon that world to be his image bearers to his likeness. But rather than actually doing what they were called to do, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They joined this, this satanic rebellion against him. And, and God comes looking for them. And they are hiding uh, behind the shrubs and the trees in order that God does not find them. 
Well, God calls them out, and there, as we saw last time, they give an account for what they have done. God, God puts them on trial, if you will. And we saw that they were, they were found guilty. And today what we see is the verdict in which, the sentence in which God hands down. What, what will be the consequence to their rebellion? I imagine they must have been terrified. I imagine there must be horror in their heart as God would, was about to explain to them what is now to take place. But interestingly, before God even addresses them, he, he addresses the devil. You know, verse 14. And then the Lord God said to the serpent, because it's, You have done this. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here people see for thousands of years have seen the gospel. And I want to drill down, especially in verse 15. Um, in fact, many theologians have a technical phrase for this uh, passage in Genesis 3.15. They call it the proto-euangelion, which simply means the first good news. The first gospel is found here. And who preaches the first gospel, by the way? God does. He is the one who brings good news. He is the one who gives hope to defeat sin. None less than Charles Simeon called this one verse the sum and summary of the whole Bible. That everything else in Scripture flows out of Genesis 3.15. And so we see that God gives hope in cursing Satan. In verse 14, he says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. The devil will crawl, God says. The devil once said, I will climb to heaven. And God said, No, I'm afraid not. You will be as low as you possibly can be. You shall move about upon your belly. He tells him, and dust you shall eat. This posture forces him to eat the dust, which I think is very fitting for his crime. He who tempted Eve to eat in rebellion himself will be forced to eat the dust. This is the humiliation of the devil. This is his curse upon him. Another one bites the dust here. The devil does. And we see how long he shall bite the dust. For God says to him, all the days of your life. Forever. You see, there is no hope of redemption for the devil. He shall be cursed for all eternity. In fact, we love the passages found in the, in the prophets that describe how God is going to recreate uh, all of creation and restore it to the harmony in which it, it once enjoyed. We, we love the passages of the child putting his hand in the adder's den and, and he will not be harmed. One such passage is found in Isaiah 65 when the prophet says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. But notice this, and dust shall be the serpent's food. You catch that? All of creation shall be redeemed, except the serpent. He shall eat the dust forever and ever. As God curses the devil, he moves on and giving hope to defeat sin by declaring war. We see this in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So there's going to be hostility and hatred and animosity. The term spiritual warfare that we use, I think, is a good one. I think God is explaining just that. There's going to be a spiritual warfare. In fact, he tells us who's at war. And I think we need to be careful here in verse 15. We see, first of all, there's a warfare between, well, what does God say? Between you, referring to the devil, and the woman, referring to Eve. This is God's protection of Eve. 
right? He's going to plant in Eve's heart hatred for Satan. It's not new that Satan hates Eve. He's always hated her from the very day in which she was made. What's new is that now Eve, and I trust Adam as well, hate the devil. God graciously puts that into her heart, this enmity, this hostility. She will not worship him. She will not bow her knee to the devil. Remember how easily drawn she was into his enticements and his temptations. And God says, no longer I shall put enmity in your heart. I will drive a wedge between you and the devil But the warfare is not simply between Eve and the devil. You notice as we read on in verse 15, he says, and between your offspring and her offspring. He declares war, I believe, between the devil's followers and God's followers. The conflict expands. Eve will have offspring, if you will. She will have, uh, the Bible, a seed. I, I think this is a reference to those who follow God. The devil will have his followers, his children, those who rebel against God. We see this later in the Bible in 1 John chapter 3, when the apostle writes, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The scripture tells us there are the devil's children and there are God's children. In fact, we see really two humanities throughout scripture. It starts almost immediately. We'll see this next week. We get to Genesis chapter 4. We have Cain and we have Abel. And as we read on, we'll read, we, there's Lamech and there's Enoch and there's Noah and his neighbors. There seems to be, always be these, these two tracks of humanities. And they're at war with one another. This is why the church is persecuted today. All around this world, the vast majority of Christians live in, in places where it's harmful to be a Christian. No other religion in this world faces the persecution that Christian does. No, Christians do. No, nowhere even near it. People often ask me, well, why, why do they hate us so much? Well, perhaps this is the reason. There's warfare between them and us. They will persecute us. They will harm us just as Jesus would promised they, they would. And, and we see here in Genesis that this promise that there is going to be this persecution, this war, there's going to be mocking. We're going to be ostracized. We're going to be considered fools as we're mocked in the cultures in which we live. There's war. You're born into a war. There's a war waging. It has from the very beginning and it rages today. Do you wonder who wins? I shall tell you, for God tells us here at the end of verse 15, he says, there is victory assured when he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is very interesting to me. Who's he talking about? You see, he, he says, he shall bruise your head. He's identified the, the offspring of the woman, but he's zeroed in on one individual. He will do this. And bruise whose head? Your head. He's referring to the devil again. He's no longer referring to the devil's followers, but the devil himself. You see, what God is saying is that there's a day coming in which you will be defeated. And you will be defeated through her offspring. Literally through her seed. But here's the problem, friends. Women don't have seed. In fact, the the Greek translation of this text, the, the word for seed is sperma. Women don't have that. Men always provide the seed. Every single time there's a child, it's always the man who provides the seed, except in one time when a woman would have a child without the help of a man, namely Jesus himself. I think this is the promise, as many have seen for thousands of years, of the promise of a Redeemer who is coming. 
a promise of one who would come and do battle with the devil. You see, and this is, by the way, not just a promise of a battle. This is a promise of victory. Jesus would come to destroy the serpent. Yes, the serpent would strike his heel when he nailed him to the cross, thinking that he had won his war. But Jesus would show that he has simply suffered a heel wound when he burst forth from the tomb three days later. But the, the, the Jesus, though he would suffer that heel wound, you can survive a heel wound, but no one survives a crushed head. This is what Christ had come to do. To the cross was a death blow upon the devil. The Bible tells us in 1 John verse 3, chapter 3 and verse 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And so, friends, I want you to see God here. I want you to get a good look at who God is. When, when everything's falling apart, when this good creation in which God had created is full of chaos, when the likeness of God has joined the devil's rebellion, when all there is is shame and sin, blasphemy and blame shifting, running and hiding, fear and failure, separation and sadness, in the middle of the destruction that sin has brought, God shows up and says, I will fix this. I will save you. I will restore to you that which you have lost when I send my son, the seed of the woman, to crush the head of the devil. Even in the midst of sin, God's first response is to give hope. This is what he does. This is who God is. He is a God who gives hope in the face of sin. But we also see, secondly, that God brings hardship because of sin. You see, he moves on from the devil and begins to refer to Adam and Eve. And he begins to explain to them the consequences, the punishment upon their sin. You'll notice that the consequences that are going to impact them are going to impact directly the responsibilities which God had given them. Remember when God created, when we were in Genesis 1, God created Adam and Eve and, and we saw that he gave them two commands to, to fill the earth. We, we do that largely by having children. And then he says to subdue the earth. We do that largely by work. You'll notice that the consequences of sin are going to impact those two works which God has given. He begins by addressing the woman. He says that she will have hardship with children. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Frustration is going to hit motherhood. I think this is entirely evident. You mothers and women know this frustration, I trust. There may be trouble in conceiving children. And when we are able to conceive children, sometimes the trouble comes with carrying the child to term, whether it be miscarriage or sickness or sore hips and back. And then there's, there's trouble even, even giving birth to the child. There's, there's pain in that work. I, I've been there a number of times. I've seen that pain. In fact, I, I've... I've concluded two things after witnessing a half a dozen labors. One, I'm glad I don't have to do it. And two, I, I, I'm glad I got to experience it because it just creates a great deal of respect in my heart. I just want to applaud my wife. Um, I found out doing that while she's giving birth is not a good idea. But, um, but it's called labor for a reason, Right. It's hard work, just as the man will have labor. Well, God tells us here that there's going to be pain with children. Unfortunately, the birth of the child doesn't stop that pain, does it? 
Now, you've heard me, I trust, a dozen times in the past six months tell you that children are a blessing from the Lord, but that's not to say that children can't bring hardship upon you and difficulty. Children bring trouble. They sin, and in doing so, they bring pain. You think Eve experienced that pain? She lost two children in one day, both by terribly different reasons. And just as God said, there's going to be pain associated with children of course, there's blessing, the great blessing there. They are able to give such delight, but it's impacted by sin. And they're also able to give hardship and trouble. But the consequences for her doesn't, doesn't, is not confined to children. You notice that it's also going to impact her marriage. For we read on in verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, there's a a lot of confusion as to what this means. I don't think there needs to be. If you just look over to chapter four and verse seven, it tell, I, I think he tells us what he means when he says your desire will be for your husband. In chapter 4, verse 7, God, in, in speaking to Cain, says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Now note this phrase. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so what God is saying to Cain is that sin desires to overcome you. It desires to rule you. It desires to defeat you. I think what he's saying, therefore, to this woman is when, in saying that your desire will be for your husband is that you will desire to rule your husband. You will desire to exploit and to dominate that relationship. But, he says, he's going to rule over you. In other words, there's going to be conflict in this home. And we've already seen this in their marriage, just as, as, as Eve has discovered with passive Adam, and she has taken the reins of this family and, and led it right into sin. And I think God is simply giving Eve over to her desire to rule this home. There's conflict there. If, you're, if you've been married for any length of time, you understand there's conflict in that relationship. Right? You will find out quickly that you have married a sinner. Sometimes... As Eve, I'm sure, discovered it, man is passive, he's lazy, he's cowardly. And she says, well, if you're going to do this, I'm going to run this home then. If you're not, there's going to be conflict. There's the blessing there. I hope you are blessed by your husband, but I trust you know conflict there. In fact, you think about these things and you think about where are, where are, where's the greatest pain for women? I, I bet if I polled you women, I, I bet 99 out of 100, I said, where's your greatest hurt? You would tell me it's, it's in your relationship with your children or it's in your relationship with your spouse. I think this is what God is saying. This will be the location of your pain. I mean, you pick up any woman's magazine and, and it seems to be, I don't read them often, but, I'm, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but it's, how can I get a husband? Or how can I keep a husband? Or how can I train my husband? Or, or how can I conceive children and, and how do I carry children and how do I raise children? How do I feed children? How do I influence children? You turn on daytime television and you just listen to women talk and 99% of the time they're talking about their husbands or their kids. They're not talking about the sports game. My wife has never uttered the sentence, did you see the game last night? She never said that once in her life. That's not the center of our world. It's, it's these relationships in which God has given women, but there's going to be conflict and there's pain there. There's consequences because of sin. But, but the pain is not just reserved for the woman, for God moves on to Adam in verse 17. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Now, stop there. You, you notice why Adam is going to face these consequences. It's not simply because he ate of the tree. You notice what God says. 
because you listened to the voice of your wife. You obeyed your wife. See, Adam committed two sins, evidently. He disobeyed God by eating of this tree and he abdicated the rightful place of headship he had in that home. He watched his wife speak with the devil, passively listening, watched her sin and followed her lead. Why did the devil speak to Eve? Is it because she's easier to deceive? Well, I don't think we have any basis to believe that. I believe he just simply wants to destroy the family. I believe he wants to, to, to switch the roles, and he was very successful in doing so. And God recognizes that and says, because you have not only eaten from this tree, but you have listened to the voice of your life, you will have hardship in work. You read on in verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. And so there's going to be frustration and toil in work, God says. Work once was a pleasure. Now it has become hard. The ground is cursed. It it once produced vegetation in abundance. Now it produces thorns and thistles, God says. The the earth was once his joy. Now it's, it's in some sense become his enemy. It's fighting back against him with these thorns and thistles. And it's just not thorns and thistles. I think that's just representative of all of creation that fights against us, whether it's mosquitoes or Lyme disease or it's cancer or whatever it is, this world is suffering and battles against us. I think men, we've experienced this. Men are given the responsibility to provide for their home, and and that's hard to do, and you men know this. It's hard to, to save up money to buy a house. It's hard to put food on the table and clothe your children and do what God calls you to do. And God says it's going to be hard. Life is going to be hard. Uh, on Friday, um, I went out to, to mow my lawn, which is really just a bunch of weeds. I, I, three hours later, I came back in the house, and I had broken not one, but two lawnmowers. And the weeds were there uncut, kind of mocking me. I could hear them laughing at me. <laughs> Life is hard. Uh, I mean, have you ever had one of those days when the alarm clock doesn't go off? And you wake up and, and you're late and you go to get the shower and all the hot water is gone and you're stressed out and freaked out. You don't have time for coffee and therefore you're even more stressed out. And you get in the car and you're in the traffic and you know you have to get to work by a certain time and you have a report that you have to give and you can't get there in time and the, the work you're relying on other people to give to you so you can do your job hasn't been done and you're taking phone calls all day from needy people and it seems like all you're doing is doing their work. You get called into your boss's office and says, what's going on today? And you say, well, just forget it. I, I, I'm taking the rest of the day off. I can't handle this. You go home. You want to you know, work in the garden and all there is is weeds. Right? And you go in and you pull the weeds and your back hurts and you're hot and you're tired and you go in for a glass of hot water and you walk out, or cold water, excuse me, you go back outside. <laughs> right? And what's there? There's a bunch of weeds there. They sprout right back up. Like they're laughing at you. And you say, what's going on? I thought I'm supposed to have dominion. I thought I'm supposed to have authority in this world. Nothing's obeying me. And God says, well, now you know how I feel. Because you're supposed to obey me. And all I get is rebellion from you. So I'm going to put everything that's supposed to be under you. And it's going to rebel against you. So you know how I feel when I'm dealing with you. Life is hard. God gives us his hardness to teach us. This ground is cursed. But in God's grace, it's still productive, isn't it? He still sends the rain. He still causes it to grow. There's grace even in the midst of this hardship. Well, it does not end there. For we read verse 19. 
we see hardship than death. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, the ground wins. We have a lifetime of survival by the sweat of our brow. One day we lie down from where we are taken and are swallowed back up by the earth. This is a reversal of creation. See, God takes us from the dirt and forms us as we've seen. And now what happens is that we go back to once what we once were. It's an undoing of what God had made. Remember the devil said, you will be like God. And God shows up and says, no, you're going to be like dirt. You're going to become fertilizer. You're going to spend your whole life fighting against the weeds. And one day you're going to die and you're going to be buried in the ground. And you're going to turn into fertilizer for the weeds above your tomb. The earth wins. Death wins. This is the consequences of sin. Remember the devil said, you will not surely die. The Bible tells us in Genesis 5, 5, the days of Adam were 930 years. And then he died. As God said. All this hardship in this world. It's because of sin. The glorious thing is not only do we know this hardship. Not only do we experience this hardship every day. Our Lord, who has never committed sin in his life has placed himself under this hardship in order to redeem us from it. So I ask you, ladies, have you experienced pain? Well, so has our Lord experienced pain beyond our understanding or that he may bring many sons to glory. Have you experienced conflict? Well, Jesus himself has endured greater conflict in order to bring salvation to sinners. Did, did sin bring thorns? Well, Christ himself has, was crowned with thorns. Did sin bring sweat? Jesus himself sweat great drops of blood. Did sin bring death? Well, Jesus tasted death for you and I. He would bear the hardship that our sin brought in order to redeem us from it. We see this hardship in sin. But we also know that God offers grace to cover it. Lastly, you see number three, God offers grace to cover sin. And we see that God's offer of grace, I think, is in response to man's faith, Adam's faith. You know, verse 20, the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living, which is kind of startling to me. Evidently, she does not have a name yet, which may be part of his problem. He's been calling her woman all this time. (laughs) And so it's time to name her. Now, remember, God just finished speaking to him. And he said the last thing he said to Adam is you will die. Next verse, I need to name my wife. What would you name her? Temptress? Grim Reaper? Look at this mess you got us in? Maybe death. Oh, he does not name her death, does he? He names her Eve, which means life giver. Isn't that fascinating? God says you will die, and the very next thing that man does is he names his wife life. Why? Why does he name her? In fact, you you notice verse 20 says, because she was the mother of all living. But friends, she wasn't a mother at all at this time. She had no children. She wasn't even pregnant. Why does he name her life giver? Well, I believe it's because Adam was listening when God spoke to the devil. And he heard what what he said to the devil, that she shall have offspring and her offspring shall defeat the devil. I believe it's because he believes God. 
I believe it was his faith in God. And I'm not alone. None less than Derek Kidner, the great Old Testament scholar, said Adam heard the promise of Genesis 3.15 in faith and therefore called his wife Eve. And by the way, it's not only that man who trusts in God here, but you notice in, Ge- in Genesis 4 and verse 1 that Eve has faith as well. The Bible tells us now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain saying, note this, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now that's a difficult sentence to translate. That with the help of is not in the Hebrew. The literal kind of wooden translation would be, I have gotten a man, the Lord. You know what Eve is thinking is that this son that she has is the Lord that has been promised that this is the one who will do war with the devil. Now, he is more like a serpent than a savior, as we'll note, but you do note that she believed. They believed in the promise of a savior. Salvation always has been, from the very beginning, a matter of faith, whether it's looking forward to the savior or looking back upon the savior who has come. And perhaps it's in response to this affirmation of faith that we see this God's provision for them as he covers them in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. He he covers them. You see, man's attempt to cover up his own sin, his own shame is utterly inadequate. Fig leaves will not do. If you think that you are going to stand before God one day and and tell him, God, I ought to be let into heaven because I've done all this good work. And you present to him before him all your, all your fig leaves of self-atonement, all your attempts to earn his favor, earn his mercy and grace. You will find that that attempt will be utterly inadequate. It will not work. And it will be too late to change. God is showing them that their attempt to atone for their own sins is not working, that only God can provide the covering for sin. So God takes the initiative. He's the one that clothes Adam and Eve. They don't clothe themselves. They just stand and watch what God is doing for their benefit. And the covering in which God provides for them requires, as you know, the death of of an innocent substitute. He has to to kill an animal in order to to get its skin to provide clothing for them. And in doing so, I, I think they must have gained an awareness of the magnitude of their sin. They must have realized how bad their sin was because... Adam never occurred to him, I should kill an animal and skin it to provide clothes. He just threw fig leaves, some inanimate, unfeeling tree that was going to take care of his problem. I wonder what it must have been like. Perhaps it's the first death they've ever seen as this animal's throat is slit and the blood is spilled upon the ground and they see the life draining out of it. It must have been horror and terror in their hearts as God was teaching them that sin requires a substitute, requires someone to die in your place. So the couple's not slain. The animal's slain in their place. The guilty continue to live. And the innocent dies. And this, of course, this blood of this animal couldn't take away their sin, but it pointed to one who could. Jesus Christ. He would take away their sin. This is, this is what God is pointing to. That he will provide for them. He will provide a covering for them. In fact, later on in the history of God's people, he, he gathers them together. Each family takes a lamb and, and they kill that lamb and they collect the blood and they put it on the doorposts in order the, that the angel of death may pass over them when he comes to slay the firstborn. You see, there was one substitute for a family in that day. A little bit later in the history of God's people, he institutes what's called the Day of Atonement. And all the nation would gather together on that day And the high priest would take one animal 
and confess the sins of the nation upon that animal. And then he would kill that animal. He slit his throat and collect the blood in a basin. And then he would go into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood of that substitute upon the Ark of the Covenant. There was one substitute for a nation. But you move on through the hundreds of years and one day the prophet of God, John the Baptizer, will look upon Jesus of Nazareth and say, Behold the Lamb of God. Who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. One substitute for all the world who would trust in him and believe in him. Christian, you are covered in the blood of Christ. The Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith, for you have put on Christ. And God provides for them. The last thing you notice that God does is he offers grace in response to sin is he protects them. Look in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now, notice a couple things about verse 22. You One, you see this inter-Trinitarian dialogue. God says man has become like one of us, namely like, like God. Another allusion to that fact that God is plural. He is, as we know, triune. He says he's become like one of us. But I don't want you to think that God is threatened by man. He's not like, uh-oh, he's become powerful like us. That's not what God is saying at all. What he is saying is that man has become independent from me. He's not supposed to be independent. He is, he is now going to make his own way. He is now going to do what is right in his own eyes. He's now going to define good and bad. And that's something that man should not do. That is God's place. It's God's place to give order to our lives, not us. It's God's place to, to tell us uh, evil and good, not us. And man has now, as he's eaten from this tree of knowledge of good and evil, said, I will do this work. And God says he's become like one of us. Well, that presents a problem, is that there is a, the tree of life there. And, and according to, to in God's plan, if man were to eat of that tree, he would live forever. Well, what must man not do in this sinful state? Live forever. He must not in his sin live forever separated from God. The garden would become a place of forever living and forever death. It, it would become hell itself. And so God says, I don't want man to live forever as a sinner. I will bring him through death and redeem him. And so he blocks off the tree of life from him. Not because he hates man, but because he loves him. For you know, verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. The, the phrase flaming sword could, could be understood as a, of a flame in the shape of a sword. It may be just lightning flashing all around this tree, and as if that were not enough, there were cherubim. These these are angels that have one role, according to Scripture. They're, they don't run errands. They don't go to battle. The only thing that cherubim do is separate sinful man from a holy God. And every time we see them, that's exactly what they're doing. In fact, they're famously embroidered upon the veil that separates the holy of holies, the presence of God, from sinful man. And here they are separating the tree of life from, from us. They're guarding it so that we might not eat of it and live forever in our sinful state. For our good, it's God who sends them away. Now, I understand this is a grim scene. There's sadness here. They're banished. 
not simply from babbling brooks and beautiful trees, but they're, they're banished from the very presence of God. They're not allowed to be with God anymore in the garden. Sin, sinners are not permitted there. And so they're sent east. East, by the way, in the Bible is always, always away from God. Cain would go east. Um, the, the Tower of Babel would be built in the east. Sodom and Gomorrah would be in the east. Babylonia would be in the east. It's always farther and farther away from God as they leave his presence. I trust never to feel truly at home in this life again. And so I, I want you to look at this passage and my hope is that you see a view of who God is. I understand there, there's, there's sobriety to it. There's sadness to it. I think it, it's helpful though to, because it explains the life we live the theme of Scripture, the theme of human history is that man, all of us, me, you, everyone, is separated from God because we have gone our own way. That is our basic problem. Therefore, the, 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 the basic search for man is how do I get back to God? Well, this passage tells us, as does the rest of the Scripture, God will make a way. And so I think many people read Genesis 3 and, and they, they think incorrectly about God. They think that, that God comes looking for Adam with a rod in his hand and a scowl upon his face. He chews them out a little bit, curses everything in sight, and then puts his foot in their behind and kicks them out of the garden and slams and locks the door behind them. But that's not the picture that God has given us. It's a picture of man at his lowest point, man in his satanic rebellion against a gracious creator, and God comes, yes, with consequences, but overflowing those consequences is grace and hope for the future. And they believe him. They trust him. That there one day would be a man who would come and restore that which they had lost. He came through the daughter of Eve, a woman named Mary, who gave birth without the help of a man. In fact, gave birth as a virgin. And her son would be this promised serpent slayer of Genesis 3.15. He's the son of God who came to defeat the devil, who came to save us from sin and death. She named him Jesus. Because the angel told him, he will save you from your sins. And this Jesus lived a perfect life, a life we have never seen before, claiming to be God from beginning to end. And because of that, they nailed him to a cross. There they killed him. They murdered the Son of God. Three days later, the Bible tells us he rose victoriously from the grave. But that's not all. The Bible goes on and says he ascended to heaven. And almost every book in the New Testament promises that he would come back again. He's coming again. And when he comes, he will not come as a lamb to be slain. But he will come as a lion to conquer. Satan will rise up in his war and the Lord Jesus Christ will come riding upon a stallion with his robes dipped in blood with a sword out of his mouth and an army of angels behind him. And he will come to defeat all of those who persist in their rebellion to him, who refuse to bow their knee to this king. And his heel will drop upon the head of the devil and crush him forevermore. He's coming. My question for you is, whose side are you on? God called out to Adam, where are you? That's my question for you this morning. Where are you? This is why I'm supposed to teach you today. This is why I'm supposed to speak to you today. Where are you? Friends, this is not a story I made up. It's a story that's been passed down 
for thousands of years that billions of people have affirmed. He is coming. He says in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, He who has ear, let him hear to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. One day that paradise will be restored and I'm going to live there. And so are my brothers and sisters in Christ, a place where there'll be sin and sinners no more. will return home to God, will never be threatened by the devil again. A place of love and joy and peace, a place of majesty and beauty, the presence of God. And there we shall be with our maker in perfect harmony forever and ever and ever and ever. Are you going to be there? Not everyone is. There are some who will refuse to bow their knee to Jesus. And I tell you, this day, on August 11th, 2013, that Jesus today offers you full amnesty for your sin. I tell you based on the authority of God's word, if you will bow your knee to him and place your faith in him, he will forgive everything you've done and he will receive you into God's family. But you must trust him. You must surrender your life to him. I'm going to be there. That's where I'm headed. Not because I'm good. In fact, I'm probably worse than you. But I've been covered by the blood of Christ. Anyone else here been covered by the blood of Christ? Anyone else here going to be in that land of paradise? Anyone else going to eat freely of the tree of life because of the work of Christ? Let us praise him. Father, we thank you for our Lord. We thank you that he has done the work that we could not do, that he has saved us. I pray that you would help us Christians realize that we are no better than the world. And that we do not stand in judgment. That is not our place. That we are simply wretches who have been saved by grace. We praise you for it. We don't boast in our salvation. We take no credit for it. We know, like our parents, the life that we would live without your work in us. And so we simply thank you and praise you. We thank you for the covering in which we have received. We thank you that the serpent slayer has come, our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we love and adore. And we thank you that he has begun to undo the work of the devil and one day shall complete it when he comes again. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, will you come soon, even now for us. Your church longs for you. We long to be brought into the full kingdom of God. And I pray for my friend here this morning. Father, I, I don't mean to offend but I want to speak truth. I feel like this world is a place of lies. I believe your word is truth. I pray for my friend here, for some reason or not, will not bow the knee to Christ. Will you not work in their life? Will you not show them the loving and gracious God that you are, that you offer them full forgiveness if they will simply stop their rebellion and follow Jesus? Help them to do so even now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.